is a peek into Foresight's biotech tree discussion. We talk about brain cell replacement, chronics, and gene therapy at Foresight's Vision Weekend in the US 2021. Speakers include Emil Kensiro from Tomorrow Biostasis and a Foresight Accelerator project at the time, JJ Ben Joseph from Incutel, Stephen Molina from Dino, both Foresight Fellows at the time, Dina Rodankovic from SALT and Amit Deshwa from Deep Genomics. We discuss a variety of different technologies in the biotech sector, which are currently gradually coming online, uh, their risks and how we can get the better of them. I hope you enjoy this discussion. If you do, then please consider contributing to our biotech tech tree. Currently, these tech trees are still being built and scaffolded, but if you're interested in plugging in, then join our Discord through our Foresight website and reach out to us on Twitter. Enjoy the session. So Emil is uh, one of our Accelerator finalists um, working on Queronix. We have JJ, a fellow here, and uh, Stephen, a fellow as well. And then uh, two fantastic newcomers to the Fawcett community. So I'm very, very, very fortunate to have you guys on board here. Thank you so, so much for coming. Okay, we're starting with the first slide that I can get access to here. Um, who do we have? It is a little bit like Russian roulette here. <laughs> uh, oh, there you went. Emil Kedzira, you're up next. Tell us a little bit what it is that you're working on. What is a long-term goal of this field and how can people solve that challenge? We already had a cryo discussion during the lunch break, so uh, you can pick up on that. Thank you so much. So, so basically what we do, right, is, um, If the guys from the panel before me uh, don't make it work, don't make anti-aging, longevity, or life extension work within the next, well, let's say 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years, which of course I unfortunately don't believe, and I very much hope I'm wrong with that, right? I very much hope that I need to do the apology tour in 20 or 30 years uh, and need to tell everybody that I was always the pessimist and the other guys were wrong, or were right. So, so I very much hope that, that 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 will be the case. But of course, I wouldn't do what I'm doing if I wouldn't believe that. Or if I would believe that, right? Because in in fact, I actually come from the longevity space. So I studied medicine in the beginning, did cancer research, and so on. To always wanting to, due to the reason of wanting to go into the longevity space, um, and then I did a bit of a detour with building a few tech companies. But now I'm kind of back at the same value proposition, of course, but taking a different approach. And of course, most of you might be aware of that approach, right? This idea of, of cryopreservation, right? And the, the fundamental idea here, of course, is that um, for people who would like to live significantly longer than currently possible while being healthy, of course, it's always a combination, of course, of living longer while being healthy, um, but let's assume this will take significantly longer than um, sometimes uh, optimistically uh, being being suggested. Um, then there might be a time when um, when people still need to go into you know at, at the end of their life or when they're being diagnosed with any terminal disease might be cryopreserved for a while. Until then, such technology to make them live longer or enable them to live longer um, exists. And this is, this is what I'm building. Of course, this is not a new topic, right? This has been around for a long time. So this is not something fundamentally new. Um, but what I think what is fundamentally new to, to approach this topic slightly more in a, in a slightly more professional maybe way and maybe in a slightly more accessible way, um, for a larger audience. So we're building where I'm, I'm, I founded two organizations, two organizations in Europe. Um, currently mostly active in Europe. One is called Tomorrow Biostasis based in Berlin and Germany. Uh, which does day-to-day -day cryopreservation. It's the operative company, right? If you want to sign up with, with a cryopreservation provider, you can do so. Um, we, we staff the medical teams, we hire the doctors, and so on. 
And then, of course, everybody's well aware that, well, why you might be able to cryopreserve people right now, you cannot take them out of cryopreservation yet. And of course, this is a big issue. Um, and then the second, it's mostly the most important issue potentially, right? Um, so, so we're working on that. Um, and that's the second organization that, that I'm, I founded. It's a nonprofit research foundation and research institute, um, that will in the next couple of weeks open a research institute, um, that we've just built, uh, close to Zurich in Switzerland that will do research just for this topic. Um, okay. Give us a long view too. Yeah. So the long view, of course, I, I mean, I don't know exactly what I put there. Um, so, so I, I would, I would say, so, so I would say biostasis and cryopreservation is, is the tangible path of, of, uh, longevity, right? So at some point, I'm very well, I'm very positive that at some point longevity technology will be around. The only, I'm only, con the only contention I have is when that will be. Right. And of course, for everybody who is being diagnosed with terminal diseases right now, next week, next year, whatever, in 10 years, um, you need a bridging technology. And this is what we're doing. Good. Wow. That, that wasn't about that. Link. JJ, it's your turn. Yes. Jay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, we have a, a challenge here from Emil as well. Um, and we're moving over to JJ. Now we're really getting into the bio risk AI territory. <laughs> I like it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm JJ. I work for Incutel, a strategic venture capital firm um, that does uh, deals on behalf of like national security. So I'll be talking about uh, biotechnology and artificial intelligence. And uh, one thing I would like you to get out of it, this is this idea that it's very promising. Um, there's like a lot of promise in these two words together. Um, and the other thing I, I would want you to get out of this is, is how to make it promising right now. Cause right now it's not, it's still very primitive. Um, so, uh, the general idea is you all familiar, um, with, you know, how in deep learning and, and, you know, the recent advancements, it's not that recent at this point. It was recent at one point. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in computer vision and so forth has led to, you know, you know, models that are, better than human performance on, on various tasks, like identifying objects and images and so forth. Those tasks are really hard. Um, so the, they're not, they're not easy. You know, a, a cat, a picture of a cat, maybe to you and me is obviously a cat, right? But what makes a cat is a, an image of a cat is a very complicated thing. It's, it's like, you know, the different poses and, and lighting conditions and different kinds of cats. And so how does a model know that so well? Um, and, and the reason is, is quite simple. It's, uh, given a lot of data, right? So, uh, the, the, the advancements in the field came from really two things, uh, more than anything else is the quantity of data, you know, the d data set image net and, uh, also the computational advancements, uh, using GPUs. Which is why, like, Nvidia is worth so much these days. Um, so, you know, the models themselves also advanced, but they were advanced kind of incrementally. You know, convolutional neural nets have existed since then, actually since the eighties, but, uh, have been used, uh, in these kinds of tasks since the nineties. So the, the problem in biology is, it's also very hard, but it's not really significantly harder. Um, so it's a similar, hardness to computer vision. So why is it not as advanced? Yeah, it's because the data is just not there. So, um, so that's, that, that's kind of what, where I want to go is 
create more data in the field. Um, Anything in particular? Yeah. <laughs> so I have the, the key challenges here. One of them is called uh, life on Earth. So very uh, easy to describe. You just sequence life on Earth. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sequence all, uh, as much as you can of different species and stuff and, and the phenotypic and omic information. You tie them together in a really nice, easy to use data set and you make it public. Uh, you make it really big and, and, and not have the, the kinds of problems that typically exist with biological data. And then the other is uh, chemical property prediction. So example is like, we have data sets, but they, you know, there are thousands of examples, like toxicity of small molecules. What if we, instead of like 8,000 examples, we had 80,000, we'd probably make more progress, right? So uh, more, more kind of advancements there. And then you, we could get there with, you know, stuff like organ on a chip, which is a technology for doing kinds of assays, uh, even on human, human cells. So we get even better data that way. That's it. Wow, lovely. Okay, you were actually quite uh, uh, quite uh, concrete there. <laughs> um, okay, even though it's a large challenge, obviously. Okay, JJ, um, thank you so much. Next one up, we have a new slide edition here, um, which just came in. Let's see if it loaded. And ta -da 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 -da. wow, we're really we're going places with this slide presentation. I love it. Um, okay, here we go. How do you like my collage? <laughs> uh, okay, Ashut, what are you working on? What's the very, very long term of this? And uh, how, how, what's the challenge that other fields can solve? Sure, yeah. So I work for um, Deep Genomics, which is a machine learning for drug discovery company. And what we're trying to build is programmable medicines. So that means that if you want to make a specific biological intervention... We want to be able to engineer those. You give that to the machine learning system. It gives you a compound that does exactly what you want. And what has enabled that is one, the machine learning AI revolution that JJ was talking about. But I would actually really disagree with the idea that it's only a little bit more challenging. And the reason why is that for image recognition, we're actually aiming for maybe human level performance. But in biology, that's not the case. What we want is superhuman level of performance, orders of magnitude better predictions than humans can possibly do. And I think that that is a more challenging thing than just copying human level performance. Um, but the other enabling technologies are very large scale biological data sets. The last panel, we talked about that. But I think one thing that is maybe underrepresented in that is the huge amounts of human sequencing data that we're generating. And why I think that's so valuable is that it gives us hundreds of thousands and millions of experiments on actual human beings that have lived an entire lifespan. An entire lifespan. Which genetic perturbations lead to better health is something that we can extract from that data and identify what genes and proteins we want to change in order to prevent and treat disease. What's the last one? Oh, right. And then the, the other thing is nucleic acid therapeutics. And I think that's really key to building programmable medicines. And that's because when you look in our bodies, how do our bodies programmably change gene expression? And the answer is nucleic acids, whether it's transcript levels or microRNAs 
or in the case of bacteria, the whole CRISPR system, it's all nucleic acids that are driving the programmable nature of protein production. By combining all three, we can produce programmable medicines and then treat all genetic diseases. And I want to focus on the idea of a genetic disease. Some people think about it in a narrow way. They think about monogenic disorders. So diseases caused by you are missing a specific protein and with 100% probability you get a disease. But I think that's way too narrow. I think that almost everything is a genetic disease. And the reason why is that when you look at heritability of many, many phenotypes that we care about, they're all heritable. And that means that they're all genetically, maybe based is the wrong word, but can be changed genetically. And so I think that almost every disease is actually a genetic disease. And so if you can produce these targeted interventions, you can treat or prevent almost every disease. And that's what we're working on at uh, Deep Genomics. In terms of what challenge do I want solved, uh, I want to be clear, I don't want to solve this. <laughs> I want someone else to solve this for me. And that is... That's what you get to do here. You yes. put something really hard <laughs> out to people. And, and that is ligands to enable cell type specific delivery. In the nucleic acid field, there's a conjugate called Galnac that when you add it to any nucleic acid, causes it to be taken up very productively and specifically in liver hepatocytes. And this has totally revolutionized how we can treat a wide range of diseases uh, that are caused by proteins in the liver. And what I'd like to see other people do is solve that for every other tissue. So that way we can achieve delivery to any cell type we want in a specific way that crosses the various barriers that get in the way of reaching the CNS or reaching, uh, there's actually apparently a, an analogous to the blood brain barrier in the, in the, uh, testes that prevents therapeutics from getting there. And so if people can solve those challenges, that would make my life a lot easier. And I think really accelerate how we can use nucleic acid therapeutics. Anyone has an idea? Okay, you get to, to think a little bit faster. <laughs> that was a quick hand. Okay, good. Uh, very nice. Okay, that's a, also a concrete challenge here. Uh, next one up, we have Stephen. Stephen, uh, what are you working on as a Fossil Fellow? You just recently, as uh, Stephen gave a fantastic uh, presentation to our Biotech and Health Extension Group and got lots of emails afterwards asking for your email. So here we go, Stephen. Great. Well, I love cold emails, so that sounds great. Um <laughs> I mean that, I'm not joking. Um, yeah, so I actually feel like I've had a lot of my work done for me here because people keep talking about gene therapy and doing a better job than I would of explaining why it's exciting and what it is. So what I do is I work at a company called Dino where we're trying to engineer um, a specific class of gene therapy ve vectors, which is AAV, adeno-associated virus. It's a very commonly used viral vector for current gene therapy clinical trials and also a bunch of like experimental studies in mice and other animals. And we're trying to engineer that vector to be much better for gene therapy um, in a number of ways. So we work on engineering these vectors to be better at targeting cert certain tissues and also 
better at detargeting other tissues. We're working on trying to make these vectors less immunogenic um, and a variety of other things. And our approach to this is very machine learning based. So we're trying to use the combination of like good biological techniques that have come around, like high throughput sequencing and synthesis are the simple ones. And also some of the things that enable this sort of multiplex in vivo screening that Martin did a good job of describing um, to characterize the fitness landscape of AAV for these various things we're trying to um, target and then create optimized AAV vectors for various diseases, tissue combinations. You could think of it as like customized AAV vectors for whatever gene therapy application you're trying to work on so that people like Gordian or some of the people working on reprogramming um, or more traditional descriptions of genetic diseases, which is actually what we're focused on now, can be solved. Um, because right now there are just a bunch of challenges that we believe revolve around current AAVs just not being good enough as delivery vectors to consistently have like high success rate clinical trials, especially in humans. Um, and so I think if we can solve this problem of like having really safe, effective, targeted delivery, gene therapy provides this really flexible toolkit for solving lots of different types of diseases and an especially nice toolkit for attacking problems in like longevity. Um, Lovely. Well, my challenge is actually similar to what Amit said, not something I necessarily want to solve, but it is something that as I become more familiar with the industry, I think is a really missing thing, which is there's a lot of talk about how like mice don't necessarily transfer well to humans. And there's a lot of good work done on like humanized mouse models. I'm um, in gene therapy. A lot of people work with non-human primates because they're a better model or they're thought to be a much better model for humans. But at least I haven't seen a lot of work on like characterizing relationships between these model organisms and humans for like specific interventions. And like I, a machine learning person, so I think about this from a machine learning context, but like it doesn't necessarily have to be machine learning. Like I'm just interested in people doing more work to try and actually like understand the mechanisms behind when things transfer and when they don't and potentially have data sets that actually can help us characterize this. Obviously it's hard because getting human data is harder than getting model organism data, but I think this is something I've been thinking about and excited about. So I threw it up there so that I am hopefully not as, I'm not as galaxy brained as some of the other talks, but I'm trying to be a little more galaxy brained with this one. Oh, lovely. Okay. Like FDA hitting for a again. Wait. <laughs> Sorry. What's your view on like the FDA recent updates on AAV and how are you thinking about that? Which recent updates? So remember they were doing some investigation about like AAV therapy and... Yeah, yeah I guess my not personal take is that obviously we are really excited about trying to deal with some of the problems that I think current AAVs to a debatable lead degree, but like to some degree have when you put them in humans. So simple example is like when you dose AV therapies in humans now, you're often doing like really high dosages. Like you're giving just really large dosages of vectors containing your therapeutic payload in them. And some people believe this is partly related to why you've seen sort of adverse events in like the liver and things like that. And so we're very excited about ways to try and potentially reduce the dosage you need and also detarget the liver and things like that so that hopefully some of these adverse effects become less likely. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's... No. 
All right. Well, Allison, thank you for having me. It's my first uh, Foresight Weekend. I've had a great time. So thank you for inviting me. Um, just heads up, I've had a lot of coffee during lunch break and then the t- rush to the interesting talks and coffee is a pot and diuretic. So if I start talking too fast, like just let me know. Um, I'm a medical doctor by background and uh, first started um, working in longevity by building a longevity research clinic with Eric Verdin of the Buck, where I still have a post. Um, I'm doing a lot of longevity investing through the SALT platform and have, have recently started um, an early stage biotech in cell therapies for ovarian aging. So out of kind of working in longevity as a doctor, scientist, a slightly an investor hat and an entrepreneur, the area that I personally believe is probably the one that can be the most impactful at this stage is cell therapy and rejuvenation. Basically, just being very simple. If something is missing, replace it. So if diseases and um, aging occur because of organ and tissue damage, if we could engineer cells and replace them, that could potentially be curative. So I kind of agree with a lot that Jean was saying earlier. And, and I decided to focus on cell therapies as the most potent technology. So a couple of like enabling technologies that I'd like to see in cell therapies is number one, like a very good way of making purely allogeneic, non-immunogenic uh, cell therapies. So I'm sure everyone here, because this is like a very uh, selected crowd uh, that is interested in biotech has uh, seen Vertex data for their allogeneic cells for um, diabetes. And even in that trial where they've reported curative results, they still immunosuppress patients. So I'd like to see completely allogeneic cells that can be used for same cell line for all of us here without the need for immunosuppressive therapy. We could be there. We have like ways how to make uh, HLA knockout cells, but we haven't done it fully clinically yet. The second thing is mass production off uh, cells. So anyone here who has done work in iPSCs even knows that it's very difficult to produce iPSCs with just Yamanaka factors, like 2% yield. So if we wanted to supply cell therapies for all of us, um, we would need, we need very good manufacturing facilities. And that is something that I'm seeing in a lot of um, new technologies. Um, we're, for example, seeing it in the food space as well, just like in medicine is that it's very difficult for new technologies to scale because there's just no manufacturing facilities built for these technologies because previously there wasn't a need. So uh, manufacturing and uh, ensuring that it's an efficient process with same batch potency. Um, and then the third one truly is uh, like increased patient demand. So if more people were kind of demanding and just understanding that health is not something that we should compromise with, that aging or, you know, rejuvenation is just not something that we should have to accept as a fact of life, that would just increase kind of a bigger uh, demand, which would push the players like pharma and everybody else to create the supply. And I think we do need to have we can't just work in silos in this aging space and we have to find a narrative how to change the public perception of what they think about healthy longevity. And so kind of the capabilities of this, um, I believe that reproductive longevity, particularly the field of IVF, is one of the first waves where we can see cell therapies in the clinic, which is why I've decided to work on it. So I'm a bit biased. 
Um, the second thing is I think they can help us cure uh, diseases that occur because of isolated organ failure. So for example, end-stage renal disease or type 1 diabetes that we're seeing with Viacite or Vertex. And then thirdly, um, which is kind of the, the biggest goal, and maybe we have to get cryopreserved before that happens, who knows, um, is to prevent um, age-related immune decline. And truly the end goal of this is to compress morbidity, um, which will hopefully also, I think, increase everyone's uh, life expectancy. So for me, the challenges, I mean, there are companies like BitBio that's working with resilience. Um, there's Selino Bio. So there are companies already working on this, but if anyone is, um, has solutions around, um, GMP certified low cost manufacturing of cell therapies, um, and like way to automate that, please let me know. I would love to chat and hopefully there are smarter people who can help me solve that. Great. I love that you actually all put a challenge out there. We're like, I don't want to solve this, but <laughs> you guys go along with it. Any comments, uh, any questions already from the panel to each other? Any one of you guys, uh, question comment already? Mark already. Great. You're, you positioned very conveniently over there. <laughs> uh, this is more of a reaction than a, than a question, but, but feel, you know, feel free to respond. Uh, I don't like the positioning of the case for cryonics being premised on pessimism about how long longevity technology is going to take. Uh, there's a saying among cryonicists that you've probably already heard. That, that getting frozen is the second worst thing that can happen to you. Um, uh, I got my cryonics contract at 80, in 87. I did not expect longevity technology to take as long as it's taking. I expected not to need it, but it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's um, great to have just in case. And I've had friends who've died because they thought they had plenty of time and they had an undiagnosed fatal condition. So... So I just want to really distinguish, you know, separate the case for cryonics from pessimism about longevity technology. Uh, yeah, yeah, quickly responding to that. Um, so fundamentally, I agree with you. So, so this is not something, this is not an either or, right? So the, the, the only problem where I don't agree with it, so it's, if every, it's, it's basically a research allocation problem, right? There's only so much money for the general value proposition, I would like to live longer than currently possible. If everybody believes, you know, just taking this pill, figuratively speaking, right, or taking this treatment is 10 years down the line, then there's no funding for, for cryopreservation. And we, we don't, we, we cannot overestimate how good cryopreservation already is. It's not a field where I would argue the quality of preservation is great so far, right? So, so the field needs significantly more funding. And if everybody thinks, hey, you know, I just need to take this pill 10 years down the line, then there is no interest in that, <laughs> right? So, so uh, it, it, I don't want to take the time to do a debate, but I want to say this, is, this question that you just raised, I think, is very much worth debating. I think that, in fact, with regard to what we should expect of future technology, the quality of cryopreservation is fantastic and has been fantastic for decades. There's, I'll just mention one phrase from Ralph Merkel that completely changed my perspective on this. Revival is cryptanalysis. And you look at how little evidence you need to successfully cryptanalyze, and then you ask, is there enough, enough evidence in a frozen brain to cryptanalyze it into the most probable healthy brain that would have been frozen into this damaged frozen brain. 
I hope you're right. And but I'm very much. I, I'd, I'd much rather put more work into air on the side of caution in this regard, right? So, I, but I very much hope you're right. Um, I don't think you are. All right, uh, up for debate, and um, we are uh, conveniently uh, breaking for uh, breaking for uh, the next. Well, we're meeting here uh, again at 3 p.m. So, I want to thank our panelists very, very much for coming on. This was a fantastic session that really went all the way out there. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>